0: Welcome to Teaching Python. My name is Sean Tiber. I am a coder who recently began teaching.
1: And my name is Kelly Schuster-Paredes, and I'm a teacher who recently began coding.
0: Welcome to episode 27. This episode is called Automate the Boring Teaching Stuff. Inspired by the, I guess now classic, Al Swigert book, Automate the Boring Stuff, which so many people have used to learn Python for the first time, Um, we're going to take a little bit of a detour this week away from the direct instruction and away from the teaching techniques. And we're going to talk about how we can use Python to automate some of the more tedious repetitive tasks that come along with the job of teaching.
1: Yeah, and it's a great topic. As as teachers, we don't like to highlight all the negative and repetitive things that we have, but you know it's something that it does come with our job. And I think Python can do a great job with helping that.
0: We're going to talk through that. We've got some examples to share with you. We've got some techniques. We've got some things to look for in terms of identifying those things that could be automated. Um, But before we start all of that, we're going to start at the same place we always do each week, which is one of my favorite places to start. And that's the win of the week. So something inside or outside of the classroom, something positive that's occurred that you want to share with everybody. Kelly, and I'm, I'm making you go first, so he's please, me please go, share.
1: He's making me go first and trying to, to give me time to think about it. Yes, so I started teaching sixth grade this year for the first time, and so that's why I guess you were giving me a lot of time to do wins a week. No, I'm just kidding. So these are <laughs> see, these are 10-year-olds, and they're an interesting group, and they're a little bit different than seventh graders, but I, I have to say it was a great win today. We finished up the micro bits. We've been working on turtle python and micro python with an introductory for the past four weeks and we started with just basic python three skills and i forgot how excited kids get when they see print hello world and print two plus three equals five and you can put spaces and add a couple of variables and you have yourself your first program and it was just fun seeing them getting engaged and the fact that they can write numbers that were a million characters long and do that math problem all in a couple of seconds it was a good win.
0: nice i think it's important to remember that sometimes those early steps although you may get a little bit jaded or you have moved past it those early steps are really important and those are the things that get people often kids but people of any age excited about coding because it's kind of magical it's fun it's something that you made happen you created just by writing a little bit of code.
1: Yeah, and they really liked it. are like, wow, this is better than my calculator. I could see all the numbers. And then a couple of kids um, did some math problems on the CoLab, and they noticed that it had a different decimal float um, output. And you'll have to explain to me later why that was than Moo. So it was kind of cool, and it's nice to re- be reminded of the things that you take for granted No.
0: Yeah, I agree. And so for me, this week, I've was teaching a subject that I have taught and actually learned many, many years ago. I started teaching my students about web development this week coming off of a lot of um, data science, Google Colab, Jupyter notebooks, working with data structures to just understand now, the other really popular aspect of Python, which is to use it for web development. So along with web development comes a lot of other skill development like HTML and CSS and occasionally some JavaScript. So we were doing something very similar with my seventh and eighth grade classes this week and and this morning, in fact, where we were writing Hello World, but with HTML. And I was moving over it pretty quickly because my assumption was that like, you know, kids have seen some HTML before, but we started all the way back at like, what happens when you type in a uh, URL into your browser and you hit enter? What's that sequence of back and forth that occurs between your computer and servers out on the internet to fulfill that request and series of requests? And what does some of that content look like? So I was trying to move fairly quickly and I caught one of those moments where people, kids started saying, wow. I got Hello World to show up, but like, that's cool. <laughs> and then we started putting pictures up there. I had a picture of two kittens fighting with lightsabers on the screen, and, and just for something silly and fun. And I forgot how empowering web development is, especially for students who have grown up their entire lives using the web, but never really needing to know how it works.
1: Yeah, and they use. there were a lot of free websites out there that actually made those web pages for them. With Google Sites, you don't really have to right. see any of the back code or Wix, and a lot of our kids Have grown up using that. So who needs to use HTML when you can go to those one pre-made site and they just make the web pages beautiful for them? Right. So it's nice to look underneath the hood of something, right?
0: And I use the example of like, look, if I have an ice cream shop and I have like pretty basic five pages and I can add some pictures to it and some styles and make it, you know, a brand site where people can come find my ice cream store and it can be found on Google and everything. Wix and Squarespace are beautiful for that. You don't need to know HTML to set up a site like that. But then I showed them, here's YouTube. If you want to make a site like YouTube where it's really more like an app and it's dynamically powered and every time you log in, it's personalized for you and what you're looking for, you can't really do that with Wix and Squarespace. You have to go further. You have to go deeper. And I said, and coincidentally, much of YouTube is written in Python.
1: And that's a good thing for them to hear. They like to, they like to know why they're doing Python, I think.
0: So that was my one was, you know, hello world, but now in a new context, in a new place. And even though these students are now four weeks into coding and it's their second year of text-based coding, Hello World still has some power for them when it's a new area for them to explore.
1: Yeah, that's good to remember.
0: So I also wanted to mention just some news this week. Um, two things I wanted to announce that are, are kind of relevant for educators. I don't know if they're necessarily announcements, but just to share them with you. Uh, first of all, our friends Julian and Bob over at uh, PyBytes have released a new set of bytes for newbies and they're pretty good. So I asked Bob and Julian if I could get a review code so I could take a look at them. So they hooked me up with a review code for for their newbie bytes. And these are exactly what you kind of need for those first few steps into Python, where it takes you through the basics of working with strings and understanding different data types and how to you know use dictionaries or functions or anything like that. So these bytes are great in, in that challenge setup. So they're all set up as code challenges You log in, you have to write some code that satisfies the challenge materials, and it runs some automated tests on it and tells you whether your challenge worked or it failed.
1: Yes, I really like these. We worked with uh, one student to test them out. She was one of those apprehensive coders, the quiet person that always sits in the back. And she got through eight of them. So I think it's a a testament to kind of what we're doing. She's like, these are are easy. Uh, Hint, hint. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, she liked, I think, uh, once she started to realize what it was required of her and having to read instructions, she really did get into it. And uh, I think it's going to be a great hit for everyone.
0: Yeah, it it really works well. I also spent some time earlier this week teaching my students a little bit about how to test code so that they could understand how the test components of Tinker, of PyTest, of all these sites work when you are submitting code for review. And it runs checks against them to see if your code passes or fails to understand what it's actually doing behind the scenes. And once they saw how it works, and they realized that the test output could help them alter their code to be able to pass the test, it was like a light bulb went off for them, that they knew how to write better code to pass tests. And that's a good thing in software engineering and software development. So I guess if Brian Ockin is listening, you know, like there's something to this whole automated testing thing that seems to be working pretty well, and we're using more and more of it in our classroom this year.
1: That's great, because now I can get into pie testing too. But I, I like that feature... In Tinker, I, when you were explaining it to the kids, and I was like, yes, that's how you pass them all. You have to get it. It was kind of a cool feature of bringing the idea of testing and testing your code and seeing what that output was. It, it helps the younger kids. It helps them to see, oh, if that was a variable and, and it was changed, why doesn't my code run? And it's a good talking point. Yep.
0: So we're going to put a link to Pi Bytes and Code Challenges in the show notes so you can check that out. We don't have any sort of like promotional link or anything like that. Bob and Julian are good friends of of the show and we want to support them in whatever way we can. And so some of that's just getting the word out and letting people know that here's one more resource or one more thing for you to tap into. Um, The other thing I wanted to share and bring up was that there's a new alpha version of the Circuit Playground Express, which is pretty exciting. We use the Circuit Playground a lot. It's a board from Adafruit. It's about, what, 50 millimeters in diameter. It's pretty small. But what it does is it runs Python on hardware and it has everything you need to be able to teach Python hardware to beginners in the code. So if you have a different board that doesn't have anything hooked up to it, it may be hard to see why it's so exciting. However, the Circuit Playground has lights, it has sensors, it has a little speaker and microphone, and there's all these little things you can do with it that's really great. And we've used them extensively in in class. What's exciting is that Adafruit is releasing a Bluetooth enabled version of the Circuit Playground, which now means that you can code it from many other platforms as well. So you can code a Circuit Playground from an iPad or from an Android device, or you can have your Circuit Playground board connect to a gateway and get on the internet. And now you're starting to do some IoT stuff. So this new edition of Bluetooth on the Circuit Playground, I think is a really welcome addition, and it's a great next step for the platform. It looks like it is compatible with all of the other stuff that the Circuit Playground is, is compatible with, including the Cricut, including their proto board that looks pretty cool. So you can use this new Circuit Playground Blue Fruit, they're calling it, with pretty much any of the stuff that we've already been using with the Circuit Playground. It's still got all the same alligator clip-friendly holes. It's still got a lot of the same sensors. It's just a really good next step in the right direction.
1: Yes, and if you went to PyCon and got your Adafruit Circuit Playground Red was it the red board? Yep. Now you have to go order your blue fruit board, and now you can have, you know, maybe they'll have a green one and an orange yep. one. Well, no, there is a green one. There's a 4 <laughs> H right.
0: model, right? So you got to complete the set. Got to get
1: the whole uh, array of colors.
0: All the, all the colors of the Circuit Playground rainbow. Absolutely. Let's switch gears a little bit. Now that we've got the news out of the way and the wins of the week, let's talk a little bit about the day to day drudgery of teaching. So, Kelly, what are some of the things that you find yourself doing over and over and over again as a teacher that Are necessary you can't get away from them and they're valuable because they need to be done but maybe if there was a magic wand you'd like to just have them done
1: so it's it's funny when you think about a teaching job I guess people really assume that you just come in talk to kids you know give a few tests and then walk away and your job's done but in, in in all honesty I think we work a lot more hours than not more than a doctor maybe but we work a lot of hours and a lot of it is that repetitive aspect that we have to do on a daily basis. One of the, the hardest thing is the, the grading and having to mark papers entered into a hard copy, grade book, which is the best way in case something happens and then entered into an electronic grade book, sending out reports, responding to emails, writing lesson plans, copying lesson plans, changing lesson plans, you name it, there it's there. So yeah. There's a lot of repetitive things. And I know in our jobs, we have a lot more than just the normal teaching role.
0: We also have ed tech responsibilities. We're the technologists for our middle school around how we integrate technology into the classroom. So there are things that come along with that. I know before I became a teacher, my impression was that the outside of of school stuff was really mostly grading papers and reviewing homework and stuff like that. And that was the stuff that didn't really feel like it could be automated, but it was certainly tedious and repetitive at times.
1: Yeah. And it's just in, in my role as well with dealing with book subscriptions and online subscriptions, just adding and making CSV lists at the beginning of the year, things that could be done or automated, but have not been automated are half the battle. So I could probably take my workload of four weeks and compress it after I automate that information.
0: Yeah, and I I think the the thing that I always thought about when it comes to automation is that automation is not there so that you work less. It's an opportunity to give you a choice to choose how do you spend the rest of your time. So sometimes that choice is to work less. If you're working 60 hours a week and automation lets you work 45 or 42, that's a great win, and that's something that should be used, right? But the other thing is, to me at least, things that can be automated are not necessarily the things that are the highest value or the highest impact for me as a teacher to be working on. Mm -hmm. So if I can find a way to automate something and deliver the same result or even a better Better result result in less time, that means that I can focus my energy and my attention on things that are more valuable to my students and to my school.
1: Yeah. When I do subscriptions, at least, making the CSVs, that I tend to make human error. And if you can get rid of those silly mistakes... You're going to win time back, and I think every teacher needs more time. I think about the little things with using Tinker and trying to take their grade book, and and you'll probably talk about this later, but taking their grade book and somehow transposing that grade and pushing it into our grade book, that would save me at least 30 minutes of class for each class period, and And then you you multiply that.
0: Right, and then you reduce the a chance for error.
1: Which I do a lot of at five <laughs> o'clock in the morning. Oh, I'm sorry, did I give you a zero? That was supposed to be a hundred. <laughs> right.
0: So automation lets us do two things. It really lets us reduce the opportunity for error and it lets us speed up processes. So really what this comes down to is, is seeing opportunities and problems. I look at A problem that we have, something that's tedious, something that could be optimized, and I look for the opportunities in it. And what I came up with was four simple characteristics that indicate that something's a good problem to solve. A good problem to automate, more likely. Here's something that we could automate.
1: And I think as you go through this list, especially if you're teachers, if you can just think of a few things for each of these categories, you can probably narrow those Categories down to one thing that you really want to automate and that's a great starting point to why you need to improve your Python skills That's our whole ploy, right? So what is one of those things that you wish you could just fix with Python?
0: And this is something where as you're going through that list if you've got something that's hitting multiple Criteria here that's like yeah, that's that fits here that fits here that fits here that makes it a good candidate to start with first So the first category is that it's repetitive and tedious. So it has to be something that is the same repetitive motion or the same repetitive action over and over and over again. That makes it a really good candidate for automation. If it's something that's different every time, it may still be something that can be automated, but it's gonna be more complicated and harder and take longer to solve and solve completely. Mm-hmm. So that's where we say, let's, let's look for something repetitive and tedious and automate that. And
1: the next one on your list is uh, technology-driven. That helps, it, right? it helps, right? <laughs> so you think about something where you have to work online, where you might be working in a spreadsheet, uh, maybe where you have to connect to a web page or a website. It has to have something formed in technology, or it could be put into technology in order to help you.
0: To be clear, this is something that's a good problem to solve with Python. So if your job is digging holes in the middle of your school, it might be a good opportunity to automate it using a you know, backhoe, but not with Python. So just to be clear, these are Python solvable problems. The next thing is it should be a necessary problem to solve. It's something you have to do. There, there are plenty of things that you could uh, automate that are things you want to do, but if something is that you have to do and you have to do it well, it makes it a slightly better candidate because if you don't have to do it, your other choice is just not to do it. Right? So if you're trying to save time or reduce error, make sure it's something that has to be done as a good opportunity as it makes it a better choice.
1: And number four, this is a great one for everyone that's starting to code. It needs to be within your reach of coding technology skills, or at least with some potential for your growth. And I I take this one to heart because I've been saying that I want to make this database for students and for their assessments. But right now, all I really can do is manipulate dictionaries decently. And so there is some growth there. And I know one day I will get the, the, the product that I want, but it's not there yet. So right. make sure you're, you're, you know where your level is. And, and if you want something automated quickly, but you don't know how to do it, it just be comfortable with the fact that it's not going to get done right away. Right.
0: Or find a partner who can help you. Absolutely. Right? Okay. So we've got our four criteria. You've got in your mind some sort of project or some sort of process that you want to automate. Here's the approach that we'd recommend that you take. And so here's our suggestion. First, start by writing out all the steps that you currently use to solve the problem at the way that you do it. So resist the temptation to start thinking about how you can solve it with Python. Right now, just write it out, whether it's on a whiteboard or on a piece of paper or back of a napkin, whatever it is, just write down, here's all the things that have to happen or in order to make this process work. Just plain English, it doesn't have to be pseudocode or anything like that, just write it out. You could flow chart this. There's a, a million different ways you could do it, but just a way that's easy for you to get it out of your head and onto paper or onto some other medium that you can look at it and see what's going on.
1: And number two on the, on the list is after you've written that, go ahead and look through those parts of the problem and identify the repetitive parts. Highlight the ones that happen again and again And those are the things that you want to make sure that you focus on.
0: And then related to that, make sure you identify how often this happens. So if you have something that's happening over and over and over again, but only once a year, is that as strong of a candidate for optimization as something that you may only do five or ten times, but you do it every week? So you're just trying to prioritize, is this really a good opportunity still? And do I really understand the opportunity and the time savings? This is about setting your own expectations for what you're going to get out of this automation.
1: And then as you start to look at those repetitive and then as you start to look at those repetitive parts, start looking for those parts and what they are affiliated with. For example, how can they be automated? Is it about sending emails? Maybe you want to send every child who's made an 80 or better on their coding challenges a kudos email. Or maybe it's about filling out forms or collecting data, answering questions. Try to get specific on what it is that you want to automate because that's also gonna help you to solve the problem.
0: This is about matching up the things that Python can do really well and really easily with the things that are in your process. So sending emails, that's not really a problem you know, parsing through CSVs and manipulating data, that's something Python can do really well. Organizing files, or even, if you see that part of your process is copying and pasting data from one system to another, Python's pretty good at taking data from one place and putting it in another. So you're looking for the opportunities where Python is strong and can easily automate what you're trying to do. So then once you've got one of those areas and you think it's a good thing to automate, you know that Python can do it, you know that you can do it, right? automate one part and test it, right? So test your process, make sure that it works. So if I'm reading all of these names from a spreadsheet, I test that I'm reading all the names correctly, right? Once I've got that tested and it's working, then I test the next part, which is sending an email to all of them. Maybe don't send an email to all of them right away. Start with like a test batch of like, I'm gonna send an email to myself. So just something that lets you build and test in small increments rather than trying to automate the entire process from the beginning. And this is where your original steps, all that stuff that you documented at the beginning can help you out because you can organize your automation into chunks that can be automated and integrated back together.
1: And I think that's really important for people who are starting to code, just thinking about that process. If it's something as simple as generating an email from a list, as a newbie, that kind of, that's a little bit frightening. We, we're like, oh, well, how do I get it to talk to my Gmail? Then I have to log in. You start getting a little bit overwhelmed. Well, maybe it is just that step from copying a list of names from a CSV and putting them out as an email address. So take a step, test it out, and once you get past that first hurdle, it doesn't seem so daunting.
0: So you just repeat that process for each step along the way, and there's a point where you stop when you start to see diminishing returns on your time investment. So when you start to see that you're not saving as much time in automating it as you are putting into the process of automation, that's a good point to stop. Once you've got all these things automated and working together, you can release it in phases. You can start using it as it's ready and just keep adding to it piece by piece because you still have your big master plan of here's all the parts that I'm going to automate. And then finally, maybe you stopped for a while because you've done all you can do with the process that you have and your knowledge and skills that you have come back when you know more so it's always good to revisit some of those automation practices after a few months or a year once you've grown your knowledge of python and your skills to be able to come back and look at it with a fresh set of eyes and say oh wait i could do this part better Or, I know how to do this part now that I didn't before. I've got a good way of of automating that. I'm going to make this part automated. So it's always a good idea to come back to something you've automated in the past. One, to make sure it's still working. But two, to see if there are any new opportunities to apply what you've learned since then to make it better.
1: So what better way to see how these steps actually work in action, I guess, is to hear about what you've done for our iPad set up at the school. We deploy how many iPads to our campuses?
0: Right now over 1400.
1: 1400. And before you took on this job, one of our colleagues who moved on to a different country, um, she <laughs> Not because of this. Not just because to be clear. of this. Well, I don't know after seeing what that was. Um, no, um, she used to do a lot of this with spreadsheets and forms and it was well organized, but I couldn't imagine doing this at the level that she was doing that. You came in and you automated some of these practices with Python and Google Cloud Platform and our JAMP. So That's right. So we're gonna walk through a little bit about what you saw as the steps of the, of the problem that you had to do.
0: So this all started back in, I guess, April or May. Um, when our boss was looking for someone to take over this project as our colleague was moving on to a new role. And I didn't really want to volunteer for more work, but one of the things I was excited when I saw this project was how manual everything was and how repetitive everything was. And I'll give you an example of this. We have a server system called Jamf, which works with Apple's best practices, their APIs, their systems for communicating with devices and managing devices at a large scale to let us manage our 1,400 iPads at the school. And it's used in many other places, not just in education, but around the world to manage fleets of iPads and iPhones and all sorts of devices. You can even use it for MacBooks, which is kind of cool. But it lets me do things like, if I have a new app that I want to purchase in volume for our school, I can deploy that app to dozens or hundreds of iPads all at the same time, and it all gets installed in the same way on all the devices. That's great. It's a wonderful tool for us to have at our disposal to be able to manage all of these different iPads. I mean, I can't even imagine going iPad by iPad to install apps. Um, but what was, what was happening was that there were some things that just didn't make sense to me as a former IT guy, as a, as a technologist, was that we, it was very tedious for us to enroll new iPads into the system. Every time we got a new iPad, we'd have to go through this series of steps to add it to our server and to give it a name and to get it on our Wi-Fi and to make all of these things happen along the way. And I thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be a way to automate it.
1: So to be clear, this is just data that is listed out and could have been stored in a CSV or and then put into Jam.
0: Correct. Well, it's, it's really more like anytime a new device comes in, we configure that device, all the apps that it gets, all the restrictions that are on it, based on that device's name. So we have this naming convention for it. Based on the name, it gets a certain set of apps. Whenever we got a new device in, we'd have to manually set the name of that device before it would start getting any of that content so what i wanted to do is move this process to be much more automated and so i started to look at what it would take to do that the other big piece of this was that if you wipe a device out like you say erase all the settings and contents on it and then re-enroll it to the server it's like it's a brand new ipad again in terms of the apps and content and everything like that so let's say we get a new ipad that comes in it takes us between five and ten minutes from end to end to configure that iPad with all the content and settings and everything like that that it needs to get on our server and it has to be done by our director of IT plus someone like me who's got knowledge of how the system works and is trained on it plus it has to be connected to our Wi-Fi which requires a password so it's 5 to 10 minutes per iPad to get this set up
1: times 1400
0: well times 250 <laughs> this right so we had 250 iPads and I thought to myself I'm not going to take 2500 minutes of my time to enroll all these iPads if I just do them one by one. I'd rather spend the 2,500 minutes implementing an automation process that lets us enroll these iPads in a smoother, faster way going forward. So what we said was, I'm gonna focus on just one part of this. I'm gonna focus on how an iPad gets its name. And what I found was that when a new device gets added to the Jamf server and it comes through Apple device manager. And when you turn on an iPad for the first time, it talks to the Apple servers and Apple servers say, Oh, this iPad based on its serial number belongs to this school. And it should talk to this Jamf server to get all of its configuration. It's a very cool thing. But our Jamf server really didn't have any idea that that device was coming in and what it should be named. So I wrote a Google cloud function so that when that device gets added to Jamf. Jamf will automatically go to any server address that you want, any web address, and call that address with some information about the device that just got enrolled. So I made it go to Google Cloud Functions and I wrote a Python function that takes all that information, looks up the serial number for the device in a Google Sheet of all the new devices that we had pre-configured with. Here's the name that goes with this serial number. And then my Cloud Function would then talk back to the Jamf server and say, this device that just came in, please give it this name.
1: Sorry to interrupt you, but that's what I do yeah. to you all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so for people that don't really know about the Google Cloud Function, yep. like myself, can you explain what that is? How do you find it, how it? And just very briefly, how it, how it works?
0: Or? Google Cloud Functions is in many ways, a similar offering to Azure functions, as well as uh, Amazon's Lambda functions. It's really just a bit of Python code that you can define and upload to Google's cloud platform, and they manage all of the other aspects of what server it runs on, what version of Python, how it talks to the internet, all of the uh, messy aspects of making a online web function work. So. It makes it very simple. It gives you a structure or a framework for how you can execute a bit of Python code in the cloud. Okay. So we've got these Google cloud functions and I really, I really like them because they're small. They're easy to conceptualize the code within the function. And I know that there are some drawbacks to it in terms of like other complexity that that creates, but I like them because they're relatively small, they're fast to create, and they have a high degree of availability. And when we're we're working at a school, sometimes we don't always have the best IT infrastructure or the best servers that are just available to be able to develop on. So sometimes it's easier to go to a cloud solution, especially like Google Cloud or Azure Web Functions or uh, AWS Lambda, because they give you a certain number of cloud functions for free.
1: And as a, as a, a newbie, a person just starting into coding, how, what's the, what's the learning curve on these cloud functions? It depends
0: on the function. So okay. if you're doing something that can be self-contained within the function, something that's calculated, like, depending on what day it is, I return a different result. If all of your code is contained within the cloud function, it's pretty easy, right? What it does is it lets you create this, like, web address that you can go to and get code back from it like you can call the function over the web it returns a result to you now of course because we're talking to other servers and because we're connecting to google sheets it gets a little bit more complicated but at its core it's not that much harder than writing a python function that lives on your computer and has to call google sheets or talk to the jamf server or whatever you can kind of move that code from your local computer into the cloud OK, so it's a little bit beyond the scope of what we want to talk about here. Um, just suffice it to say that this is one approach that you can take that can move your code from being on your own computer to someplace in the cloud where you can get to it from other places. But regardless of the implementation, the cool part about this is that automation step, that part that makes it easily connected from the, your iPad management server to this cloud function. And then the cloud function does some work on it. So in this case, what it does is it sets the name, it verifies a few things, it also keeps a cache of all the devices so that if I re-enroll a device and it comes up with that new iPad generic name, it knows what it used to be named and will rename it to be the new name. So that's pretty cool. Then in addition to that, I get some of these other side bonuses now that I have a cache of all the devices that are on the server or I have this Pythonic way of talking to the iPad server, I can do data science type stuff on there where I can look at all the iPads we have. I can start to predict like which iPads are going to start failing based on how they've you know, failed out in the past. So it gives you some extra added features by just you know, starting to write code that talks to the server.
1: That's pretty cool. And it's, it's these steps, this, this data that's coming back, it's allowing you to identify the repetitive parts already. So you, you had a repetitive issue and then now it's highlighting other repetitive issues that you can solve for.
0: So if I can write instructions in mm-hmm. a Google Doc that would tell you how to rename a device in our server to say, take this device and change the name to this and here are the rules for it and If I can write that kind of prescriptive document for you, mm-hmm why not just write that in Python and have Python do those steps instead of you? I mean, because you're pretty fast, Kelly. <laughs> but, but
1: Not that fast. <laughs> Google
0: Cloud's pretty fast, and you have certain working hours that we can't get around. Like, <laughs> you know, I can't call you at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, hey, rename this device for me. But I can make Google Cloud do that. Exactly. Um, so all that being said, it doesn't really matter the implementation steps, okay? It's this idea of taking something that's repetitive, finding a way to automate it reliably, test it to make sure that it works correctly and that it, it, you can verify the results. But the important thing is the results. Mm-hmm. What time has this actually saved for us? What has this enabled for us as a school that we didn't have before? And so now that this process is up and running, we've gone to a place where I can take an iPad that we have pre-configured in our system with here's the name that it's supposed to be, here's what department it is, those things. We've put that in our Google Sheet. I can hand you that shrink-wrapped box directly from Apple. You can unwrap it yourself, and the first time you connect it to the internet, it will go talk to Apple and to our server and get named properly and start downloading all the apps that belong to you. And that all happens within about 90 seconds.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty cool process. And I know a couple of our colleagues that are working with it are starting to get used to it. And the idea of not having to go and enter everything in, it's, it's, a, great, it's a great thing.
0: Well, what has been really gratifying to see is that the this capability also works when you have to wipe a device. So let's say a device gets into a state where it's like, I don't know why it's working and I don't really have time to figure it out. I'm just going to wipe it, erase everything on it, and reload it from scratch. It will again pick up the name that it used to have and start downloading all its apps again. So our colleagues, ourselves included, whenever we start to run into an issue, instead of spending days or hours trying to figure out what's wrong with this iPad? We just wipe it and reload it, and now we're starting with a fresh device. So it clears out all student photos, or songs, or recordings that they made. It lets us keep our devices in a more fresh and ready state for our students.
1: Okay, I'm gonna put you on the spot. Okay. You can probably do this, but for someone that's going, oh my gosh, I can never do this, right? Can you name some of the few Python functions or, or simple of the lines that some of us newbies will go, Oh yeah, we know that word. Is there some things? And they're like, just to give uh, everyone else that are out there who's kind of like me, who's kind of going, Yeah, I can never get this. Just to reassure us that there are the same applications that we've been learning are in your code.
0: Yeah. I mean, really when it comes down to it, it's just a series of instructions. So I'm still using things like if statements, else statements, if the name is one of these, or the it's in my list of devices, then do this function. So we're still talking about the same basic control, control structures. I'm still using for loops to iterate through every device in the inventory to say, do this series of steps for every device, right? It's
1: that idea of just getting the list of things that you want to look through that, you know, for iPad and iPads list.
0: Yeah, at. I mean, and look, I've probably over, I uh, know I've definitely over engineered this <laughs> solution. I, I've definitely over engineered this. You do not have to, to go to this level to see benefit from the automation. Even just having something that takes your server and says, give me all the devices, all the iPads that we have and put that in a Google Sheet every day so that I can analyze it or that I can run my own, you know, charts and everything on it. That could be a huge savings.
1: And that's the thing to keep in mind when we're talking about the automated solution is just starting at the basics. If you can think of that problem and break it up into smaller steps and think about the things that you can do, how can you manipulate that? And then search for the stuff that maybe you don't know how to do. I'm sure someone else has some help for that. Stack right. Overflow or, or another colleague of yours and and check it out
0: right and and do it in iterative chunks right so you can iterate through this process of start with something small that you know you can get to work you can test it to prove that it works thanks Brian (laughs) Aachen. how do you know that it works you can verify it you can test it and then deploy that actually start using it and then do the next round of iteration and add a little bit more to it you can treat it as a learning project where once you have code that's working you can deploy that code I put it on Google Cloud Functions, or you can put it on that server that's running in the corner, whatever your place is that you're putting this, you can get it out there and then try to learn the next little step forward that moves you forward. This is a series of small steps forward to get to a solution, not giant leaps.
1: Very cool. I'm excited about that.
0: So if you need some resources, and, <laughs> and I, I always love having resources to work with, I would highly recommend, recommend the Automate the Boring Stuff book by Al Swigert. It's A really well written book in general but it really works well for teachers also because there's a lot of great examples in there for things that you'd want to automate like if I have a list of names in an Excel spreadsheet I can load that in well you can swap Excel spreadsheets for Google Sheets with just different libraries and you can read through it
1: yeah Uh, I, I, I read through that book before it was last year when we talked about it briefly it was it's really nice to to get the the concepts the projects that he puts in there if you just switch out a couple of the words, if you're in the basics, for example, dic- dictionaries, I was working sort of in database and, and how I could map out a student with a score or a birthday and just getting your mind into that, That's a, it's a great book
0: for yeah, it works. starters. It works really well. The other thing that I kind of call the duct tape of the internet, I'm not the first person to call it the duct tape of the internet, but the duct tape of the internet is Zapier and If This Then That. So if you've ever tried to figure out, well, how could I get this system tying to another system in a very easy way tools like zapier and if this then that what you do that with a website so you can go in there and they even give you i think like 10 rules that you can set up for free every month um, and to buy more you know more rules that you can create and run is something like 20 dollars a month it's not a huge amount of money um, but what it lets you do is basically take any web service and connect it to another web service using your own set of rules in between. So maybe you don't have the knowledge and know-how to pull together the API from Gmail and connect that to the API from Google Forms. But Zapier can do that. And you can take some sort of trigger event that happens in Gmail and use that to submit a Google Form. So there's all of these great ways that you can connect these systems together and use Python to fill in the other pieces Um, The cool thing about Zapier in particular is that it runs on Python itself, like the back end is this massive, cool Python system, but it also lets you create your own little chunks of Python code that run within Zapier to be able to do some more advanced manipulation of the content that you have.
1: Yeah, And just doing a quick look for all the educators out there, a lot of things in Google Drive are supported in Zapier and Twitter and Gmail and Google Forms and Instagram.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really cool. I used it in my past life for digital marketing, and it was great just to organize and automate things. I've got a Zap that if I have a, a new contact that gets created, it puts it into other systems for me um, so that I can easily get to it, just so that I'm not copying and pasting. So it kind of automates the boring stuff for web applications, things that are available online.
1: Very cool. Good finds.
0: Yeah, it's uh, this is one example of how to automate something, and I hope the tips that we've given here are useful, and I hope that you can find ways to apply it. These should be pretty simple, basic approaches that may end up with complex solutions or highly engineered solutions, but you have to start somewhere. You have to start with one small idea, one small opportunity, automate that, and then automate the next thing and, and build on to it.
1: Yeah, and I'm still looking for someone out there in their listener world who's going to automate my database um, uploads for me. So if you've got a solution, well, you
0: already told me you didn't want my help. So,
1: <laughs> well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna check for listeners first to see what they have. But how do we get all those darn students and all their class schedules into all these different types of CSVs? I'm sure we can figure that out together for yep. next year.
0: Yep. Well, we'll get there. And and that's the thing. Don't beat yourself up over the things you haven't done yet just give yourself a chance to try something and learn from it and use these as ways to build your own skills and growth by just saving yourself a little bit of time so it's a double win. Cool. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the end of our topic. Um, Kelly, how can people reach us if, if they want to get in touch with us or suggest topics that they want to automate and need help with?
1: Well, like always, you can send us a, a direct message at teachingpython or you can tweet to us.
0: Yeah. We're also on the web at teachingpython.fm.
1: Or you can contact us personally at Kelly Pered on Twitter.
0: And at Tyber on Twitter. We also accept pictures of cats, um, soldering guides, any sort of uh, memes about Python jokes, success stories, photos of students winning at things. Pretty much anything that furthers our love of teaching and of coding and, and helping students be successful.
1: We're teaching Python. This is Kelly. And this is Sean. Signing off you <music>